So I was traveling last week and I wanted to know what was going on inside my house. So I just pulled up my Sense app and I took a look and I could see exactly when my AC was cycling on and off. I could see my always-on devices, um, when other appliances were turning on and off. So I kept texting my wife at exact moments and saying, oh, at at 2.43, did you turn this appliance on? Did you turn lights on and off? She thought it was super annoying, but uh, I thought it was kind of funny. Anyway, we're both benefiting because now we know what's going on inside our home from anywhere. That's right. The sense box is this little orange box. Uh, You put it right in your electric panel. An electrician can help you install it, or you can do it yourself if you're knowledgeable. And it will sample power over a million times per second and start learning all of your devices. So if you want to know more about your house and save energy in the process and those greenbacks, go to sense.com slash GTM and get yourself a Sense device. That's S-E-N-S-E, sense.com slash GTM. From Green Tech Media, this is The Energy Gang. Debates and discussions about energy, clean tech, and the environment. I'm Stephen Lacey. Welcome. Natural gas has been called the crack of the utility industry. So are we all feeling that cocaine confidence, telling ourselves that we're doing better than we are? An extensive new review of methane leaks across the oil and gas sector suggests that, yes, we may be fooling ourselves. When factoring in methane leaks, gas could be just as problematic for the climate as coal over the next couple of decades. We'll dig into the results, uh, and they are complicated. Then GE is selling off its distributed gas business. Siemens is considering the sale of its gas turbine division. Both are sticking to their guns and renewables. What does this reshuffling tell us about the way these power giants are navigating the shift in the global energy market? Catherine Hamilton is chair, 38 North Solutions. She's there in Washington, D.C. Hello, Catherine. How are you? Hello. It's getting a little swampy here. (laughs) So you've been getting a lot of questions about your name. There seems to be some confusion about your relationship with North Korea. Yes. When we thought of our name, 38 North Solutions, which is the lateral parallel that connects D.C. to San Francisco, we were thinking, oh, this is the connection of policy to innovation. And nobody's going to be talking about the DMZ separating North and South Korea, are they? Uh, So now we're getting calls from press and queries about what do we have to do with Korea? And and we don't. We're, We're a clean energy consulting firm. You're actually getting calls from press asking you about North Korea? Yes. (laughs) I thought you guys were focused on decarbonizing North Korea. (laughs) Well, if that's the outcome, yay. Yeah, well, uh, if your business expands, maybe you can be the firm to encourage North Korea to join the the Paris climate commitment. (laughs) Yeah, we may be accepting new clean energy clients now, but uh, probably nothing... Nothing so much as Korea. (laughs) Well, it doesn't matter who it is, whether it's the North Korean dictator or a clean energy company. This advice don't come free, folks. Jigger Shaw is the president of Generate Capital. He is, where are you this week, in Chicago? I'm uh, I'm at my in-law's place in Orland Park, so we're spending the week with family. You sound different. I hear they shoved you in a closet. <laughs> I am in the basement surrounded by old clothes that are muffling my my sound nicely. Yeah, it sounds good. Only the best in sound dampening technology for our co-hosts here. Well, this week's show is all about gas. When it comes to climate change, America is turning its back on the rest of the world diplomatically under this president. But we're also puffing out our chest a little. 
While European countries with a lot of wind and solar struggle to slash carbon emissions, America has cut its power sector emissions by 27% since 2005, and it's causing us to be a little righteous. Those numbers do not tell the whole story, however. Natural gas accounts for a lot of that decline in carbon emissions. But if we account for methane leaks, um, the climate benefit arguably diminishes. Some people think it goes away entirely. Remember, methane is 80 times better at trapping heat than CO2 over a 20-year period. A new peer review study in the journal Science put some numbers to that problem. The study was five years in the making. It looks at methane leaks across the oil and gas sector uh, in drilling operations and finds that they are 60% higher than EPA estimates. So that's a big deal. Put another way, the methane leaking out of pipes and equipment has the same warming impact over a 20-year time period as all America's coal capacity in 2015. And that doesn't even really account for downstream storage. This is really looking at a lot of upstream operations across oil and gas. So how do we grapple with this? What do we make of the findings? Jigger, what do you make of these results? Well, look, I I think that the status of our ability to really pinpoint how much leakage there is from the natural gas infrastructure has been you know, debated hotly and heavily during the Obama era, and you know it it continues within the Trump era. So I, it is not clear to me that that natural gas today is worse than coal because the data seems not you know sort of the error bars seem pretty wide. Um, but yeah, look, theoretically, if we have a ton of methane leakage, then methane you know natural gas could be worse than coal. But I still think that. From my perspective, natural gas's value in being able to destroy, you know, coal market share is critical. Yeah, and I would say the report does say these these leaks are avoidable but not inherent to natural gas. So while Jigger has a pile of clothing as his high-tech solution to having clear sound on his mic, the solutions to methane leaks are not there, there are some things that are very sophisticated coming on, but this is a really vibrant industry in gas mitigation. And there are a lot of companies, everybody from Floor to John Crane to smaller innovators on detection and repair. And it's, you know, it's not as much rocket science as you might like to think. It really depends on how you measure it. So there are a couple caveats to this particular study. One, they're looking at oil and gas. So if you isolate natural gas and compare it to coal, the impact may be actually less from a warming perspective than this study suggests. However, you know, uh, Robert Holworth at Cornell University has issued a bunch of studies since like 2011, 2012, looking at methane leakage. And he thinks that natural gas is uh, actually worse for the climate um, because of methane leaks than coal. Now, the gas industry has disputed his findings, and there seems to be less resistance to this new study, which looked at both um, emission sources from the ground at actual equipment and uh, abo- in the, from the air above, above sites. But with that said, I think that there's a pretty big caveat here in that we're measuring not just natural gas, but oil. Um, it also depends on the time frame as well. So methane doesn't stay in the atmosphere and trap warmth as long as CO2 does. And, you know, CO2 lasts for a century or, or more. And methane really um, packs a punch over like a 20-year time frame. So what they're saying here is that in the short term, natural gas 
if you see a certain percentage of leakage. And I think that the number like for a dangerous warming is around four to five percent of gross natural gas production. If you see methane leakage that equates to four or five percent of natural gas production, that's really that causes really serious warming and offsets the decline in, in coal consumption. What we're really talking about here is a 20 year time frame. Um, and then after that, the methane dissipates and you still have this potential climate benefit. So I think it's important to be nuanced about this. Well, I also don't think that methane is from you know, these pipelines is going to be that substantial compared to, let's say, methane that's released from the permafrost in Russia and in Alaska, right? I mean, like the amount of methane that they're finding underneath the permafrost that could just be released in one fell swoop is enormous. Yeah, but this is the problem, right? So so that methane release could happen in the next 20 years. So even though you don't have this same long-term warming impact, if you're accelerating warming over a 20-year time frame, then you open up all these other natural variations that cause this warming feedback loop. And I think that's the big concern here. But remember, I think with smart public policy, a lot of this is solvable. It is. So you've been working on this, Catherine, and uh, there, there, there's a positive story here uh, in that the industry generally wants to work on this problem because it's actually economical to trap these methane emissions and create a usable product. I mean, it's not like th- they're doing themselves any favors by letting these these methane emissions uh, into the atmosphere. Yeah, absolutely. And you're right. Full disclosure, my managing partner, Isaac Brown, runs a coalition called uh, Center for Methane Emission Solutions that works solely on policy, whether it's federal or state, for mitigation of methane emissions. And just to give you a sense of the policy landscape, um, the Obama administration did two concurrent rulemakings for methane. One was the Bureau of Land Management, BLM, part of the Department of Interior, which is all of that development on public lands. And then EPA, Environmental Protection Agency, did everything else, anything that wasn't on public lands. And they both had to develop concurrent rules. So it took them a long time to do this because they wanted to make sure they were very much synced up. Um, and both of those final rulemakings were put into place during the last administration. The EPA rulemaking was done early enough to avoid what's called this CRA, Congressional Review Act process, which I've talked about before, which is if you can, within 60 days of a rulemaking, Congress can pass a CRA that basically says you're not allowed to do any rulemaking on this ever again. Um, So EPA's was safe. BLM's wasn't because their rulemaking was just finalized December of 2016, right before the new administration. Um, Luckily, we were able to get uh, Senators McCain, Collins, and Graham to vote against this, and so they did not pass. Um, The Trump administration tried and has lost in court on just not enforcing um, the EPA rule. They've tried to nullify both rules. They've lost in court. So right now, the Obama rules are in place. They're just not being enforced. And both EPA and BLM have started new rulemaking processes where they've done Um, public hearings, taken testimony, and they are still yet to publish a final rule um, for both BLM and EPA. The issue is that industry on the federal side has all come together. So all the folks that are developing uh, oil or gas, especially, and those technology folks and the NGOs, the environmentalists, have come together and said, 
this is great. We can do this. This is economic. Like you said, they either break even or save money. Um, and from the BLM point of view, we get, the U.S. government gets royalties from companies that develop natural gas. And if you're losing, you know, 2.3% of your natural gas production, that's lower royalties that are going to end up coming back to the U.S. taxpayer. So from a federal standpoint, um, it makes economic sense. From an industry standpoint, it makes economic sense. And so what have all these companies done? They've turned to the states. So to summarize this further, the industry and advocates and policymakers have come together to create rules to save gas producers money. And while there were definitely... Um, fights over the details of these rules. The gas industry largely supported them. And then the Trump administration has come in and tried to tear them down. That is correct. It is the administration of opposites. But I will say this. Now it's turning to the states because the original Obama rulemakings were actually patterned after Colorado Reg 7, which is even stronger than the federal regulations. And in Colorado, this rule has been an unmitigated success. It There have been no lawsuits. They're even talking about it enhancing it with the oil and gas industry to enhance the regulation. It's a thriving industry. Um, and now states like Ohio and Pennsylvania, who already have rules to deal with new sources, are now looking back like, why can't we do this with existing sources too? New Mexico is talking about it. So states are now doing it bit by bit. Of course, it would be so much easier to do this from a federal perspective because then we wouldn't have this hodgepodge. Um, Europe is way ahead of us because of the policy that they could all agree on. So of course, it would be great if we could do this federally. But in the meantime, states are moving forward. And that's partly because of their public health issues. In Colorado, natural gas exploration is in neighborhoods. So this is personal in Colorado. And rather than shutting down the industry, they say, all right, well, this, let's make it a better player. Right. But Europe is far ahead of us because they also basically have banned fracking. I mean, it feels to me like Europe is not ever going to get close to the natural gas boom that we have here. I mean, the U.S. Natural Gas Conference was this week in Washington, D.C. And, you know, the head of ConocoPhillips actually believes that we're in a hundred year, um, you know, gas boom in this country. Yeah. And a lot of that is the technology that we've developed for fracking. Yeah. And so I look, I just want to make sure we put this into context in the sense that, look, I think natural gas is unequivocally a good thing. I think that it is going to shake up coal markets around the world. I think with Qatar and other folks in the LNG market, you are going to see everyone around the world from emerging markets to to uh, Western powers switching from coal to natural gas. And the coal industry is heavily on the retreat. And, you know, I think that's a good thing. I think separately, you know, natural gas is quite imperiled here in the United States, even though we need the flexible natural gas power supply in the United States. The fact that the Illinois market, for instance, is clearing at $22 a megawatt hour means that that's not a high enough price for the natural gas guys to make money. And you see the same thing this summer with Texas, where a lot of the natural gas generators just can't make a profit um, because wholesale market prices are so low. So on the one hand, I think natural gas is great for destroying coal. And then on the other hand, I think natural gas power plants are challenged in this country economically. Yeah, it's... Uh... It's a tough situation, right? This this boom has been a a good thing for lowering carbon emissions, but a terrible thing for uh, many generators. Let's get back to the findings, though. I mean, look, we can quibble with the percentage of methane leakage, 
But I think this does complicate the natural gas picture. Um, I, I I agree with you, Jigger. I mean, natural gas has been largely a benefit in the power sector because it has accounted for most of the CO2 drop, and it will play an important role going forward. But whether you agree with Robert Holworth or these researchers, we're looking at a, you know, three to five to six percent leakage rate. And whatever the number within that range, those are pretty dangerously high methane levels. And in a sh- over a short period of time, they do offset the global warming benefit of uh, natural gas offsetting coal. So I-, I do worry because we're looking at some short-term acute impacts right now. And these you know biofeedback loops that we're going to start to see over the next couple of decades uh, could accelerate if we're accelerating natural gas at the same time. So it's complicated. We do have to look at the complete picture. And no matter how you look at the percentage numbers, gas has a greater climate climate impact than it appears on the surface. Right. But I, I just the reason why I caution us all is because I think natural gas has a very complicated role to play in our global energy system. And so I think we need to talk about it within that framework. Um, it also is very essential for heating. You know, today we're not actually moving that fast and electrifying everything and converting, you know, all of our heating um, to uh, to like sort of ground source heat pumps and air source heat pumps, et cetera. So I think for industrial applications, others, natural gas is going to be here for a very long time. And then I think when you think about global climate change, I mean, the shutting down of nuclear plants can have a huge impact. You know, the deforestation that's occurring around the world continues to have huge impacts on land use. You know, I mean, the global shipping fleet continues to burn bunker fuel, which deposits black carbon in the Arctic, which accelerates the, you know, sort of melting of the Arctic ice, right? So I just think when we put it all in perspective, I think natural gas has more of a positive story around how we're changing and shaking up global energy flows than, you know, the negative impacts. Yeah, and I think that if you can fix some of this leakage and make these plants more efficient and the, all the entire process chain more efficient, you will have to build less um, and fewer plants. And I think that is, you know, that's all to the good. Let's take a quick minute and talk about Sense, our sponsor. I use my Sense app every day to check out what's going on in my home. Sense lets you keep tabs on your home from anywhere, save energy, and make the most out of your solar investment if you do have solar. The same team that brought speech recognition technology to market is focused on making the home smarter and more energy aware. Sense uses machine learning technology to identify the unique electrical signatures of your individual devices. And those real-time insights, they let you know when your kids got home. I don't have kids yet, but it does let me know whether my sump pump is running whether I left appliances on, whether my AC is running, you name it. And if you do have solar, you can compare your whole home energy use and your solar production side by side, no monthly fee attached. For solar installers who want to help customers make the most of their solar investment, or for utilities looking to deliver more holistic energy services, Sense can help you there too. To find out what Sense can do for you, visit sense.com slash energy gang. That's S-E-N-S-E, sense.com slash energy gang. So we spent the first half of the show talking about the upstream gas business. Let's shift now to the world's biggest power plant equipment makers who are helping the world consume that gas. 
The last year or so has been pretty trying for Siemens and GE, which are both making big cuts to their power businesses. They are both the largest makers of gas turbines in the world and account for you know, the majority of the power plant equipment out there. Siemens is reportedly now looking to sell its gas turbine business. And GE just said that it is selling its distributed gas business for CNI customers and universities, these uh, end-use customers that you know are building microgrids and combined heat and power plants. Both companies expect gas to play a major role in the global power mix going forward, but they are seeing demand for gas power plants weaken. They're seeing you know double-digit percentage drops in their sales of gas turbines. And meanwhile, they're seeing demand for renewables strengthen. They've collectively laid it, laid off tens of thousands of workers in their conventional power businesses. And um, so now they're going to investors and saying, OK, we need to make this shift. In March, Siemens CEO actually told The Wall Street Journal that the entire industry had underestimated renewables. So they're publicly saying that the shift to renewables has something to do with this uh, change in their gas businesses or in their, their power infrastructure businesses. We do want to put it into context, though. So both companies are undergoing a broader restructuring, and gas generation is just one part of that transition. But the fact that they're de-emphasizing gas and keeping their attention focused on renewables is significant. GE's moving deeper into wind and into large offshore wind. And in recent months, Siemens scooped up you know smart, a smart lighting company and building efficiency companies. So, Jigger, how do you read into all this activity? So I think there's a broader trend at play, and I think that the details really matter. In general, I would say that GE's strategy, as well as Siemens, throughout the 90s, was to sell uh, natural gas turbines as a replacement, basically, for what they should have done, which was batteries. Right? Most of these natural gas units in the 90s ran... 10% of the time, 7% of the time. So they basically just stuck them out there for reliability purposes and never ran them. You know, and then, you know, what happened in the 2000s, well late 2000s is when natural gas prices fell, people started saying, "Hey, wait a second, we can repurpose these natural gas plants as baseload power plants." And so then they started inching up to 20%, 30%, 40% capacity factor. So we are getting more natural gas megawatt hours today than we did 20 years ago. But they are selling less gas turbines because they flooded the market with turbines years ago. I mean, just to put it in perspective, there were about 450 gigawatts of natural gas combined cycle plants built in this country through 20, to, through 2008, which is enough to basically run the entire country most days, right? And so it's one of those things where we were just so oversupplied with gas turbines that you know, like it was only inevitable that the party would end. So what you're saying is that it's not necessarily the surge of renewables. It's that there was this oversupply of equipment and that uh, the crack cocaine of natural gas well, uh, it's just gripped, so, gripped these companies. It was just so cheap. I mean, you could build a natural gas power plant for less than $900 a KW, and you would just stick it in the ground somewhere. Nobody cared. I mean, you would just build them, and then it didn't matter whether they ran or not. I mean, there was a natural gas plant. I think it's still in existence in Berkeley, California, that PG&E runs. that runs 65 hours a year total. Right? I mean, it's just nuts how low the capacity factors of gas plants were in this country. And they've inched up because, you know, because gas prices plummeted so far. But, um, but in general, I don't think this, this spells the demise of gas as much as it spells the demise of 
new natural gas plants compared to the gas plant manufacturing capacity that GE and Siemens has. Yeah, although there are companies like Intergy in Louisiana and Arkansas who want to build more gas plants, and this isn't based on any demand forecasting. They're using bad numbers for alternatives to those plants. They don't seem to care much about the customer costs and rate increases. They want to build big plants. So there are some parts of the country that are doing that and not taking into consideration all the other solutions. I think where GE and Siemens are going is they're saying, look, there are so many other solutions that we can sell globally that people really, really want. And we know how to do this. We know how to manufacture things that they're, they're making some smart investment decisions. I think separately on the GE side, so GE bought Yenbacher and, you know, other companies, Waukesha and those units. That's, it's distributed gas generated. Yeah. Right? And those, those, that's what they're sp- they're spinning out. And and it sounds like there's a couple of buyers in the wings, and so that should be a successful transaction for them. But I think, um, you know, the big problem there is that we have systematically basically said that, you know, that we don't want to build combined heat and power in this country. Um, you know, every utility in the country basically sets their standby charges at rates that are exactly what it takes to make combined heat and power projects, not pencil. And And so I think GE just didn't, figure out that they needed to spend a lot more policy dollars to open up the market, you know, whether it was CHP plants or whether it was um, anaerobic digesters, for instance, where there's 1,800 operating digesters in Europe and Yenbacher is the preferred engine in a lot of those plants. They thought that was going to happen in the U.S., but didn't spend the policy dollars to open up the markets here in the U.S. And so we have like 30 food digesters in the U.S. as opposed to 1,800 of them in Europe. And so I think a lot of this is GE actually just falling on its face around a lot of its sectors where they didn't do the policy work necessary to support a lot of the eco-imagination technologies they purchased. But they did have to do a lot of policy support for the renewable energy business. So they have a $9 billion renewable business, $7.7 billion of which is onshore wind. And you know they worked pretty hard to make sure that that tax credit stayed up as long as possible. Oh, yeah. I think they did a good job there. But I think in that case, the wind business took off before they spent a lot of policy dollars back in 2004 when they bought you know, the remnants of Enron Wind out of bankruptcy. But I think when you think about like the water technologies they purchased, the anaerobic digester technologies they purchased, they have failed in almost all of those areas. They sold off the water business finally to Suez. The anaerobic digester business is going to be sold off with this group. I mean, it's just, it's one of those things where I just think that GE uh, across the board, I mean, not in wind, but in all the other areas of eco-imagination, just had a really hard time with supporting the hundreds of policy fights needed to to make those technologies take off. Well, one of the challenges with a company as big and complicated as GE is that they usually buy up a lot of businesses or develop them in-house and then throw them all together into um, you know, one big unit. So eco-imagination featured a slew of investments in solar manufacturing, in marine power, in desalination, in wind, um, pretty much everything. And they spun off most of those businesses in favor of wind and data, software development, and sensors. And then I think they, you know, they, they focused on the brilliant wind turbines. And it seems like actually like the, the sensor business hasn't done as well as they thought. They kind of assumed that they'd be throwing sensors on, on everything, making power generation equipment across the board really smart. And that business has not done as well as they thought. And so 
inevitably there's a lot tied up into these decisions. It's not necessarily just one policy failure. There are there are so many reasons why a large and complicated company like GE would start um, streamlining his businesses and maybe spin things off that aren't doing as well as, as they imagined. But I, I will reiterate, like, GE's still saying wind is going to be a huge business for us, and then eventually offshore wind, and they're developing this 12-megawatt offshore wind turbine, which could be the biggest wind turbine in the world when commercially deployed. And that's pretty significant that they're they're doubling down on those investments. I also think it's got to be harder for large companies like GE and Siemens to be nimble. Um, you know, they're big manufacturers and their decisions are taken over long periods of time. So they have to look at, you know, what's going to be the smart decision for the long haul. Well, yeah, but let's, I mean, I, I do think that we need to call this what it is in GE's case, which is a fall from grace. I mean, you're talking about a company that has been delisted from the Dow, right? I mean, this was one of the original Dow components. General Electric was the company, like is the company that basically built most of the electric utility businesses around the world. I think they said something like 57% or something of all of the electricity infrastructure globally has GE components in it, right? I mean, it's just... This is a storied company that may actually spin off its entire power business one day, right? I mean, like G is becoming more of like a healthcare company and other types of businesses. It is, it is something to like really behold, which is that in this period of extraordinary change, which, you know, we have all been a part of in the last 15 years, GE really missed the boat in really big ways. We had a discussion about this on the interchange earlier in the week, and one of the questions that we asked was, how much of this is due to faulty information about the rise of renewables, right? Jigger, you've been famously critical of IEA, the International Energy Agency, and the EIA, the U.S. government's data arm, because they've been extremely conservative for a decade or more on renewable energy. And these large companies... And global policymakers are making decisions based on this data. And I wonder how much of this has to do with decisions made based on a conservative outlook on the rise of renewables or just the changes globally in the power mix. Yeah, look, I, I think that a lot of these folks, you know, have some incentive to not change quickly, not because they don't want to. I mean, I do think GE bought a lot of companies and created imagination and all the things that they did. But ultimately, when it, when push comes to shove, there are only so many smart people in these companies, so many people who are actually the doers who get something done, right? And they put the right people into the wind business, but I don't think they put the right people in the solar business when they bought Astro Power's assets out of bankruptcy. I don't think they put the right people in some of these other areas and it shows right and this is the challenge with rapid change is that you know when these things change quickly if EIA IEA and all these other folks basically don't you know pro put provide data that helps these folks make good decisions then what ends up happening is that they they end up sort of withering on the vine it's not enough to just be in the game you either have to be on offense and leading or you get passed by other people and I think Siemens is doing things a little differently. So they've really been looking at the distributed side of the business and, you know, for example, teaming up with AES to form Fluence. It seems like they're taking a different approach than GE. Let's finish up the show and give our free electron. 
Catherine, what's your free electron this week? I have two quick free electrons. I'm sorry. I always do this to you all. You always do, too. <laughs> have you ever had just one? I don't know. <laughs> it's so hard for me to choose. It's like, you know, it's like which ch- which of my four children do I love the best? Um, so <laughs> Obviously the first one. <laughs> right. So the first is, and I haven't been able to dig into it as deeply as I would like to, but Jeff St. John had a good piece on it. The New York Energy Storage Roadmap is great. 1.5 gigawatts, the most ever for energy storage and not just about we're going to make this mandate, but really how are we going to do it? And I think New York has a plan. We hope they execute on it well, but the plan is great because I think it'll help storage, but it'll also help distributed energy resources, non-wires alternatives. So I'm really excited about that. I hope everybody reads Jeff's article and then also just takes a deeper look at the roadmap. The second piece is this is something totally different. I discovered this podcast called Cricket Conversations. I was just looking for something different to listen to. And uh, Jaleesa Arce, who does a lot on social justice and is a dreamer, interviewed a woman named Christine Mittermeier, who's a photographer who has taken an approach to climate change. That is, how can photography, which can cause a visceral reaction, and you think about this when we saw the picture of the little girl crying and it really changed the way a lot of people in the country were thinking about our immigration crisis. This is the woman, Christine Mittermeier, who took the picture of the starving polar bear rummaging through the garbage. And it really caused an emotional response from people. And so her goal is to try to get people to internalize climate change and internalize the crisis that we're in and really call them to action through photography. It's really worth listening to the podcast. It's on Crooked Conversations, and I think it was the June 20th podcast. And look at Christine Mittermeier's um, Instagram feed. She's really an incredible photographer. And uh, this may be one way to get people to do something. Yeah, I'll give it a listen. I mean, look, we can talk about stats and the climate problem and the rise of renewable energy all we want. But until you see it visually, it can um, it, sometimes it doesn't land in the same way. So um, I'll be really interested to hear that. Jigger, what's your free electron? There's a the good article in Forbes that uh, Silvio um, Marcacci published. It's It's information on, you know, the brownfields that we have in this country. It's not dissimilar to the papers that were put out 15 years ago from Department of Energy on brownfields to bright fields, but it really highlights that that the 15 on the 15 million acres of landfills and brownfields we have in this country, you could actually put 3,000 megawatts, and it's in all 50 states. Sorry, 3,000 gigawatts of solar, which is more than enough to to power the entire country in terms of kilowatt hours. And then that doesn't include parking lot space. It doesn't include, uh, you know, solar rooftops, et cetera. So I, I just think that this argument around having to disturb farmland to be able to meet our um, clean energy targets um, was always specious at best. And you know, I think Silvio brought a great, you know, sort of point to that. Um, the other Amen. Th- the other thing I'd love to talk about just real quick is that, you know, Ben Jealous won his primary in Maryland for governor. And, you know, it's interesting because he's running partially on a fossil fuel free, um, you know, agenda. So it'll be interesting to see if he wins the governorship there. But I do think that, you know, there's a level of ambition there around, you know, moving the energy sector to a fossil fuel free um, place quickly. So. I was taking a walk this morning. We're recording pretty early, and I was walking my dog early before we pressed the record button. 
And I was listening to this new podcast from The Atlantic called Crazy Genius that I really like. So another podcast recommendation. And they look at all these big questions in technology. Um, is Amazon going to take the world, take over the world or should it be broken up? Um, what's the evolution of Facebook? Should we travel to Mars? Um, are we tech addicted and what do we do about it? They're really good, very well-produced show. So I recommend people listen to the entire series. And they just wrapped up the last episode of the series with a question about whether we should go to Mars. And they looked at Elon Musk's mission to go to Mars and what it would take to actually colonize the planet and put millions of people there. And they actually raised this really interesting ethical question. One was that I think is actually like dominated the debate over whether we should go to Mars. And the question is, should we care more about, you know, the people here now and generations that will soon be born on this planet? Or do we have a responsibility for the far off future generations to be an interplanetary species and to, you know, diversify ourselves, so to speak, so that, you know, we can continue to live on as a species, even if we ruin this planet? It's a really interesting philosophical, ethical question. And I wonder if either of you have thought about that or, or what you think, if we have a responsibility to go to a planet like Mars and start colonizing as an interplanetary species, or if we should exclusively focus on our problems here. I have two things. One is Space Force. And I don't know about anybody else, but when Trump suggested having a Space Force, I just thought of like the pigs in space from the Muppet show. Um, Wait a second. I don't even know about Space Force. Oh, yeah. Donald Trump said, in addition to the other armed forces, we need to have a space force. He wants to fund a space force. So that'll protect all those people going to Mars. The other thing is, like, who's going to go? It's going to be the rich people. So I don't know. It just uh, that whole thing has always felt very wrong to me because I don't think you're going to have the, you know, ethnicity and social socioeconomic diversity that you would have uh, that we do here. Look, I, I think that the writing's already in the wall, so I think it is sort of is what it is. We've, uh, you know, allowed rich people to, you know, get uh, citizenship in New Zealand without living there. We've, like, you know, allowed them to take over Mr. Silos to, like, have their places when the end of days come. Like, you know, I think we have already decided through voting patterns and other things that, uh, you know, our desire to make the world better is changing right in, in our post-world war ii framework and you know we need a new framework so basically what you're saying is that there's an even deeper ethical issue at play here not only would we be abandoning humanity but even worse we're abandoning um the most vulnerable people on this planet which is a um a pattern of behavior it seems with humanity yeah i mean we've abandoned democracy Right. I mean, just think about like what the status of democracy is globally, wh whether it's Turkey or Rwanda or other places. I mean, you've got Bill Clinton and other people going to Rwanda saying this guy is a fantastic person when he's actually a dictator that actually like wiped out a lot of people during the Rwandan genocide. Right. I mean, I just think that like we are living in a different world today. And I think it's important for folks to recognize how different the world is than it was in the 1980s, when we were the shining city, you know, on the top of a hill. From dictators to democracy to social justice, who knows what we're going to talk about when I pose a question like that that brought me into directions I didn't foresee. Interesting. 
All right, folks, what do you think? Should we go to Mars? Do we have a responsibility to just focus on this planet? Hit us up on Twitter. Let us know what you think and let us know what you think about this show in general. Do we have a gas problem? Uh, You can find the three of us on Twitter. You can also find the Energy Gang as well. You can send in a note via email to podcasts at greentechmedia.com. Pose a topic and maybe we'll grapple with it on the next show. And if you want to send a voice memo, perhaps we will feature your question on a future episode. Give us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. We say it every week, but it's truly helpful for helping us find new listeners. Also, Google has a new podcast app on Android. Um, We had some feed issues with Google that we've had to resubmit, and so the Energy Gang should be up there soon, and the Interchange is up there right now. So look out for that. If you're an Android user, uh, we will be on Google's new podcast app. And with that... We thank you for being with us. With Catherine Hamilton and Jigger Shaw, I'm Stephen Lacey. This is The Energy Gang, a production of greentechmedia.com. We'll catch you next time.